0: Follow the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord, decide, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, a son, who delights. Thank you, Alex. Uh, bow your heads again with me briefly to pray over the sermon. <clears throat> Lord, I come to you prepared to say something this church, and I pray that you would speak through it, that it would be so much more than what I have to say, that the Spirit would move in each of our hearts as we hear this this passage, this wisdom, as we learn more how to best follow you, in your name, amen. Amen. So we're coming out of a series of four weeks on the prayers of Jesus, which I loved preaching, and I hope you all loved. Um, hearing and taking in. And we're going to take a, this is like a comma, but it's a good comma. It's not a meaningless comma. Um, it's a moment where we can go into Proverbs um, and learn a little bit about wisdom before we jump into a book. Well, We will be jumping into to a full book to start going through again. I love that practice. Um, today I wanted to look at Proverbs and I wanted to look at it the way that I needed to, which is to simply start at, at just the foundation. Start at the foundation of how do we how do we learn wisdom? How do we study the wisdom of the Bible? How is wisdom in the Bible, the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and these areas? How is it different than the other areas of the Bible we've been learning from? We've been learning uh, from the Gospels, which is a very different uh, style of writing, of delivery, than Proverbs. And so at first at first take, it would look like Proverbs, if you were to just jump in, as I'm sure maybe you've done, you've jumped into Proverbs, and you've said, oh, I really need some encouragement right now. And you read Proverbs, and you go, oh, great. If I do this, then this will happen to me. If I do this, because these are if-then statements, this this section that Alex wrote, is six pairs, Verse one and two is a pair, verse three and four is a pair, and they're if then statements, right? So if this happens, then this will happen. If you keep my commandments, then lengths of days and years of your life and peace will be added to you. It seems as though Proverbs is a promise to us, but we know, we know that's not the case. We know that these are not promises that are just like a genie in a bottle that when we do something, it will happen. Right? We know that that's not how God works. We know that ultimately he is in control. And, we, and so we have to wrestle with this wisdom literature in a different way. And I heard a great take on um, how to, what, what is wisdom? What is the question of wisdom? Wisdom is what we have to use the 90% of the time that we can't use the law or the commands or the moral truths to make a decision it's the gray of life. Most of your day you are making decisions with wisdom, right? Most of your day you're not deciding, "Oh, because I'm not killing that person, this is the right move. Because I'm not lying, this is the right thing to say. Because I'm not envying, this is the right thing to do." But it's not just that you're not breaking the law that you're making the right choice. There's a nuance. We all live in the gray all of the time and Solomon, who compiled this wisdom literature, knew that it would be wise to look at the generations of people. Not just, this is not all his writings. I think some of us have taken in Proverbs as like this. is Solomon wrote down, he was just a really wise man, and he wrote down all of these sayings. And he he must have just, they just all came out of his heart and was divinely inspired. He collected knowledge that had been passed down through generations, right? Um, There was a take that I liked uh, by a British politician. He said, a proverb his name was Lord John Russell, and he said, a proverb is the wit of one, but the wisdom of many. Doesn't this ring true to us? That A proverb is put into words, but it's a truth that we know. The, the proverbs ring true because we have seen how this is the case, but it's not always the case every time. It's not a promise that comes true every single time. It is a general rule of thumb. The wisdom of Solomon that he wanted to collect, that he wanted to provide for his nation to have as a repository, was to help us grow, to have a sort of a follower of God best practices, if you will, right? We need something to go off of where we can center ourselves. In, in business language, this best practice ideas resonates with, with some of us. This idea that, okay, this is the way I ought to do things, right? I can go check myself. And I can say, this is the way I ought to do things. So that's what wisdom is. And and in the ESV notes, which I love about this, says one understanding in Proverbs is a sense of the right course of action. So another way of looking at this is, what is the right course of action? How can this help my decision making? And so I want to look at three points today. I want to look at uh, how we find wisdom. What is the prerequisite? For wisdom, practice it, what is required, what is the foundation to have in order for us to find wisdom? And that's trust. That wisdom requires the fear of God and trust. Secondly, I want to look that wisdom is not simply just received out of thin air, it comes by practice and by doing. And thirdly, that while these promise these these if then statements that appear to be promises seem to offer the good life. Wisdom in and of itself does not attain the good life. We don't earn the good life through wisdom, which to me seems like the third point you wouldn't want to have. You would want to say, okay, John, hey, tell me that I can trust and fear the Lord and then tell me that I can start to practice these things and then tell me I'm going to get the things, right? This is how we do life. We say, okay, I'm going to learn this skill. I'm going to do it really, really well, and then I'm going to get this result. This is how we're trained to do pretty much everything we do in our life. And this is not the way God works. If we run our faith this way, we will be sorely disappointed. Our faith will be destroyed. We will be crushed. Because we will be living in moralism and legalism instead of in faith and in trust. So, first, looking at trust. The section begins by a father talking to a son, and it ends with a father talking to a son. This is a relational proverb. Many of these early proverbs in the first few chapters are given in this format. And I think it's helpful just from a story point of view for us to see that, that a father, what does a father give? What does a parent give you? As a dad, I can say, and actually, as interacting with my brother, I really noticed this. I was hanging out with my brother the other day, and he has like a really deep warmth for his childhood. And I have it too, but not in the same way. He's like recreating his childhood for his kids. He skateboarded, so now all his kids skateboard. Like he snowboards, they all snowboard. It's like he is very much vicariously living this life through them, which is wonderful. He's creating a wonderful life for them because he so dearly loves what was passed down, like what he found, that he wants to pass it down again. And I think that's how this wisdom literature is poised for us, it's saying, these things worked for fathers and my fathers and their fathers. Let's collect this good practice and let's share it down through the generations. There's worth in doing that. But the things that are shared are not skills and crafts, they are attitudes. Like we learned in the prayer series, the things that are most important for our faith are attitudes. So he says, my son, do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. And then it says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you in verse three, bind them around your neck, write them on a tablet in your heart. And then verse five starts trust in the Lord. These things all have something in common and it's rooted in the beginning of verse five where it says trust. That is the key for us, that we would trust God. Because if a son does not trust a father, if a daughter does not trust a mother, then none of the information that's conveyed has any value. If if you've broken my trust, then the the desires you have for me, I'm going to rebel against. I'm going to say, no, thank you. But those those are, we're not good. I don't want those. And so it's crucial for us. In order to understand how to best live and receive God's wisdom, the divinely inspired wisdom that Solomon wrote down, that we must first trust. Uh, There is, so trust, trust in what? Well, you could say trust in God, John, trust in, you know, that's what you trust in. But it says here, but let your heart keep my commandments. So in the Old Testament especially, there was a rootedness, there was a huge importance for the nation of Israel to keep the law, because this was a very specific thing passed down to them. So we can trust in God. We can trust in his law. We can trust in his ways. And what that does for us is it creates a path. The very, very famous verse, verse six says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I think this is for some of us a, a childhood memory verse, perhaps, but. Um, this idea is that the trust in the way creates a path. It, for me, it's very visual. Trusting in a way creates a straight path. Because if I don't trust in a way that creates a straight path, I do what I so often do when I fall away, when I begin to break the law, when I begin to covet and envy, when I begin to lie and steal, when we begin to be selfish, I meander. My life path, as I look back and I say, man, has, has my life been wise? I look through and I see all of the meandering I've done. My life is full of taking little side trails that I thought would be a shortcut. My life is full of taking uh, places where I say, nope, I don't want this path anymore. There's a why. I'm just going down this one. And then I end up having to either backtrack or hike through the hills to get back to the path again over and over. I think this path metaphor is so brilliant because the straight path is not necessarily an easy path, but it's one that is known and that is clear and that has a end to it. The life that God provides for us, the law that he gives us is one path. It's a clear pathway for us. And there are fruits that come from that pathway, not as promises, but as a general rule. Um, If you, to prove that the commandments help us understand that pathway, I, I did a game where I plugged in opposites here. So I went through these pairs, the first pair, verse one and two, the second pair, verse three and four, and I said, okay, let's play an opposite here. If I don't keep the commandments do these promises, do, do, these, do these then statements, do these likely practical outcomes, are they very likely? So I took a common struggle that I know many of us deal with. I took envy. And I said, but let your heart keep my commandments. Okay, if I envy, I'm not keeping the commandments. I'm breaking one of the commandments. So if I envy, what's going to happen in verse 2? For length of days and years of your life, and peace will be added to you. I don't know about you, but when I envy peace, is not the thing that comes to me. Peace just isn't there. So I can say without a doubt that while, that while length of days in life are not promised to me, they are much more likely than if I don't follow the commandments because those things and peace will certainly not come to me if I live a life of envy. Go down to the second pair. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the table of your heart. Envy is the denial of faith, Envy is saying, I would rather have what this person has or what this person has than what you've given me, God. It is the denial. I am not writing his, his faithfulness and his love on the tablet of my heart. I am denying it. I'm not even getting it close to binding it around my neck. I've like put it in a drawer to take out occasionally. There's no way I'm committing to that. Envy It says in verse 4, So ye will find favor and good success in the sight of man. When you are envious of co-workers, of friends, it does not help your reputation. And so you can go down, you can go down through this, and this exercise yields something for me, and it shows me something. It shows me that the commandments are a root of things. The law is important that it does help create this pathway for us. And if we trust in that law, the path is straight. It is clear what will happen. And so then we can look at, second, moving on to the second point, we can say, wisdom comes by doing. There's, there's a, the, the Hebrew word for wisdom, which I don't know well, because I am just starting this pathway. I'm not a Hebrew expert. Uh, but in studying this, there's this word hukma. And I, as I learned about this word, it really struck me. It, it's a word used by skilled laborers and craftsmen. And that is not the first place I would put wisdom. But as I thought about it, it really made sense to me. What is wisdom? When you see someone wise, how do you know? You know because the decisions, the, the really big decisions, come so much easier for them. And the small decisions are like the turn of a hand. They're like the gentle finesse. They can move. A good dancer knows how to move. Somebody who's a good sailor will know how to tie knots. They'll just be able to whip the knots up. They'll be able to string everything together. It's second nature and it's extension of their body. They so know and have so practiced the ways and the law, and they so trust its outcomes that they do it as if by muscle memory. So, the skilled craftsman metaphor of wisdom to me is powerful. It's powerful. It shows me that while at the beginning it is very hard to learn a skill, to learn how to tie a knot, to learn how to work with wood, to learn how to play music, to learn how to bake, to learn how to do all of these things, it is a struggle at the beginning. But there is a trust that when I practice this, there will be an outcome. And then when you become like well learned in it, when you become a skilled laborer in it, then when you you get off track with something, the solutions are much clearer. When, When the recipe is a little off and things taste a little wrong, you know what to do. You throw a little of this in, you throw a little of that in. That's wisdom. Wisdom is being able to take a situation and say, I have not just practiced and know this, but I trust in the outcomes of the way of doing this, the way that I learned to do this. And it's beyond that because that would just bring like a worldly wisdom. It's saying, I trust the one who taught me how to do this. So there's there's a worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom will teach us things like the tortoise and the hare. You know, Aristotle can give us worldly wisdom. He can say, Slow and steady wins the race, guys. Slow and steady wins the race. Well, it, it may win the race, but what race am I on? Right? What race am I running? That's a nice technique. But that does not bring a barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. Because that is, verse 10 is not talking just about this life. It is talking about eternal life. It can't be true that doing these things will bring barns filled with plenty in this life, but we know that it will bring barns filled with plenty. We know that that's true because we trust in the one who will do that. So it's the skilled labor and it does require some work. There's kind of a magical thinking for me Uh, as I've learned more of the Bible, the less the less I trust in this sort of like open your Bible and find a verse and put your finger on it thing that we tend to do. We all have like a version of this that we do. Uh, one night, actually, as I was deciding to do this, as I was wrestling with being a pastor, I, I held unintentionally a vigil, basically. I was, I was up all night. And I said, Proverbs, give me something. I read verse like chapter 10 through 30. And I was just like, give me something. Like, give me the answer. Haven't we done this with the Bible over and over? Where we're just so wrecked and so struggling. And we say, give me the thing I need. I need it right now. Give it to me. We insist in that moment. And it's magical thinking. It's not that the Spirit can't work in that time. It's that God says, John, Proverbs is a jigsaw puzzle. The more you learn about the Proverbs, the more you realize it was ridiculous what you did that night. I started studying for this and I go, oh, that's why it didn't work. Proverbs is set up where to, to properly preach most of Proverbs, you have to find the, the the verse about marriage here and then the verse about marriage in like a totally different chapter and link them together. It's a jigsaw puzzle that I had to put together. And I was just like scrambling through the puzzle with all the pieces turned over, flipping one over at a time and like hoping it would be like me as a pastor, like, oh, There it is. Good. We're good. I can go to bed. And of course, it's like half of a leg, and it's like you know the side of a building, and nothing makes any sense, and you just go to bed exhausted. Like this is the way that we tend to do faith when we're not, when we're not patient and trusting in the craft of faith. And again, I am not saying. I am not advocating moralism and legalism of saying, do all of these things and you will get this thing. But also, this wisdom literature is not saying, don't do all of the things and you will get the thing. There is a process that is wise that says, learn from the master. Do the jigsaw puzzle. Take the time. Put it together. And ultimately... Your memories of parts of that puzzle as you put it together will make it much faster to put it together the next time. It'll make it much faster. You know what the picture is. You can see it because you've been learning it, because you've been practicing it. Another way of looking at this is that um, we are trained from a very young age, especially in the 21st century and sort of postmodern late modernity, we're trained that we are so special that reality will learn us. So think of a high school or college graduation speech. Usually a well-known author, entrepreneur, politician comes up to, at this time, generation Z, I don't know, like the the next generation after millennials. uh, And they will say to them, you are so special that the world has to learn you, go do. Like that's literally the speech that everybody gives is like you have something that's so great to give the world and you're going to change everything. And then we hit, what is it, age 34 for me, age 40 for some people, age 50 for some people, maybe younger. And you realize, oh, no, I have to learn reality. Reality does not have to learn me. I have to learn reality. That's wisdom. That's when we realize we need wisdom. And that's what's so crazy about the life we live in, is that that flies in the face of all of the technique, of all of the process that's given to us, because we've been asking reality to conform to us, and we have so many examples in the media of it working that we think the rules don't apply anymore. I mean, you, don't even, you shouldn't even listen to the tortoise and the hare anymore if you trust the media. The media says, startups, go, make it fast, make, get your money and retire at age 30. I mean, this is like the big thing. is like, this is how you do it. Like, none of, none of the past matters anymore. Throw it all away. We are our own people. We live in our own time. Meaning is what you make it. Why would you need wisdom literature if the world is what you make it? Nothing has meaning except what you decide. Why are we disappointed with our life if that's the case? Why? It's because wisdom is learning reality. Reality is not learning us. We are asked to learn it. God created a reality that we're learning. The, the New Testament wisdom literature Uh, R.C. Sproul, who's a a well-known Presbyterian minister, called the New Testament uh, Wisdom Literature, James. And I thought this was was helpful um, because James does read uh, very much like wisdom. It's not dissimilar from Proverbs at all. If you look at James 3, 13 through 17, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility of that comes from wisdom, the learning from reality that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So James really goes there. He really puts, puts a point on that. He says, listening to the world is not just earthly, It's unspiritual. I mean, he goes to a very uncomfortable place for us. He says it's demonic. I mean, if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, you're just not listening. I'm like, how do I preach on that? You know? Demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. The meandering path when you're fueled by envy and selfish ambition, when you can break the law because the law has no meaning, because there is no moral truth, because nothing matters, you are on a meandering, twisted path of your life where any, at any point, whatever is best for you and your feelings is the place you're going to go on the path. We know this is the case. Following our gut is not wisdom. It's not. Think Following your gut is not always wrong either. But following your gut is not wisdom. The world asks you, I mean, if you go to pop psychology, most of the articles you will read say, listen inside, follow your gut. Well, if your inside has been trained wrong, if you've been trained to do to, to tie the wrong knots, then when you put that sail up, it's just gonna fly off. It's not gonna hold you. You're not gonna get down to where you need to go. The world's wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and you will find disorder in every evil practice. Because when we're on a meandering path and things get tough, and we run out of food, and we're still lost, and we still don't know how to get there, then you'll do anything to survive. You'll sacrifice any relationship. You'll manipulate any colleague. You'll play around with every philosophy. You'll do whatever you need to do To make yourself feel better so you can go to bed at night, so you can get what you want. That's the wisdom of the world, and that's where it will get you. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. That is what requires trust. To get that wisdom, we must trust and fear the Lord, that he is so much bigger than us, that he is so much greater than us. Because otherwise, there's no way we can be peace-loving and considerate and submissive. John, you're telling me to be submissive in this culture? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to stand up for myself. I'm supposed to make sure my rights are not infringed upon. I'm supposed to make sure that I care for myself. That's worldly wisdom. And God is saying, you cannot live. James would have known, you cannot live like Jesus if that's your Emma. You cannot do it. Because when you get in that wisdom decision that you have to make, about whether you're going to be submissive and sacrifice for someone else. When it is inconvenient for you, you will not do it. You just won't. You will excuse yourself, you will rationalize it, you will justify why it's okay this time and how next time you'll do it. You will not let it inconvenience you because you don't have the trust and the faith that good fruit will come from it. That's what James is saying. So if we look at two stories to sort of illustrate this wisdom. One comes, both of them come from the wisdom literature. Um, First is the story of Job. So a little backstory on the story of Job. Some of us may be familiar with the story. Job is called a person of great wisdom. The first verse one of chapter one says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Job was a very wise man. And then God says, look at my servant Job to Satan. And there's this whole drama that plays out in which Job sees the absolute worst things happen to him. His flocks of sheep, fire comes down from heaven to annihilate things in Job's life, to annihilate his successes. Uh, His flocks, his camels, his children are in a house and a wind comes and just collapses it and kills them. For the wisest man, if he had followed and trusted in God because these were promises, there is absolutely no way he's going to stay on that path after this happens. There is no way that's going to happen. But as we know in the story of Job, he continues to have faith. In fact, he has these these three friends that come to him, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they each give him advice. And all of their advice basically boils down to God doesn't like you or you did something wrong to God and you should correct your ways. And Job goes, I didn't. I did the right things. And how many times can we relate to this where we say, God, I'm looking back. This was all the the best practices. I did all the right stuff. How on earth is this happening to me? Uh, In the book of Job, there's these two metaphors that are used. One's called a Leviathan and a Behemoth. We kind of know these words. They're these mystical, mythological uh, creatures, right? The is a giant sea creature, and the behemoth is an earthly monster. These are metaphors for this, when this happens. The Leviathan in your life hits. Some of us can relate to this. We've experienced the Leviathan already. We've experienced the behemoth. We've experienced the thing that has come, and despite everything we've done in our best leg plans, it has wrecked our life. And for the rest of us, the Leviathan and the behemoth will come in your life. You will face it. You will either face it before you die or you will face it at death's door. You will face these things that Job faces. The story is important because the faith of Job, what he says to his friends is he says, he calls them worthless physicians who whitewash their advice with lies. Man, that resonates for me. So many times I have listened to worthless physicians in my life, who have come in and said, "John, you just should have done it this way," and I, and I go, "I don't see, I don't see how," and or they, or they say, "This God that you have is taking you nowhere. Get out of this. Do something else." They're worthless phy- physicians who whitewash, whitewash their advice. With lies. <clears throat> and then Job ponders man's relationship to God and he says, The Lord. Um, he ponders man's relationship to God and he starts to wonder, he starts to go, How is this possible? Ultimately, and we'll come back to that in a second, ultimately, though, this is important, Job's life is bookended with prosperity. Job's life begins in wisdom and prosperity. The Leviathan, the behemoth, comes to his life, and there is scorched earth in his life. And what does he stay true with? He stays the skilled laborer. He keeps the trust in the one who taught him. He continues the craft. He cries out to God, and God brings these things back to him. Now let's contrast this with another figure in wisdom literature, Solomon. Solomon, who wrote, the, who collected all of this wisdom, who became so incredibly wise, who did so much for the nation of Israel, who had, the, Israel was in a time of prosperity with Solomon. Solomon's Leviathan came in a very different way. Solomon goes through his whole life and everything seems great. He has the picture perfect life. He has the life that we all want when we read the news on our phone and we say, I wanna be that person, I wanna be that person. That's Solomon. And then this happens. Late in his life, with all of his wives and all of his mistresses, he starts to listen. He starts to love something other. Everything's been given to him, he has it all. He begins to take his life and his blessings for granted and he builds shrines to his wives, his foreign wives' gods and he builds them all over the nation of Israel. And his life ends denying God as the one true God. Despite everything he has. Job, who goes through hell, stays close to God. Solomon, who denies, who loses his trust and his faith, loses it all at the very end. The Leviathan for Solomon is more like the serpent. It comes insidiously. It begins to undermine And Solomon does not realize it. And that's it. Sin pollutes the end of his life. And it's not one decision that Solomon makes. It's a series of decisions. Solomon says, I have a good life. You know what would make it better? Some political alliances. You know what would make Israel stronger? For me to just strengthen these things by more marriages, by more things. You know what would help us become a real metropolis? Be open to all people. Build shrines for all people. Create spaces for my wife's people. Let's take over the world. That had to be somewhere in his mind when he built these shrines. There had to be some political motivation. There had to be some simple set of decisions where he got off track. Because he didn't trust in the straight path he he had. He said, this one's nice. I have a better one. I think I can get to it. And so he started to go and that's how his story ends. But as I said earlier, the the third point, the surprising point is this is not moralism. This is not legalism. This is not a promise. This is not something we claim by doing, even though it requires trust. Wisdom requires trust as a foundation and it comes in part by practice. The good life is not attained by trust and practice. Job, in his story, cries out, and he says, in in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? He is looking to reconcile himself to God. And then he says, For God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on his both. Let him, the mediator, take God's rod away from me. So tease this out a little bit. Job is saying, I can't speak to God, I'm nobody. And I'm totally confused by my life. Oh, how I wish there was one that was there that could help me speak to God and cry out to him, that would go to court and argue my case, that I lived a good life, that I was wise. I wish there was someone that would do that for me. Job, in the Old Testament, as a wise man, felt what we all feel. He desired grace. He knew that the, good, the wisdom, life, wasn't bringing the good life. How do you know? He saw it. It wasn't happening. And so he cried out. He said, if not this, then what? I'm trusting in the only thing I've been given to trust in. What, God? What else is there? And then in verse in, in chapter 16... He says, even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. It's amazing. Four verses later, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, because Job came down with boils. That was the last thing that happened. He got as close to death as he could get. He says, after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see, I shall see God, whom else I shall see for myself and my eye shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job so trusted and so had faith that before Jesus was, Job saw him. He called out to the one that he knew must be there because for God to love him, Jesus must be. The Old Testament cries out to the New Testament for the fulfillment of what must be. The good life is not given, or is not earned, it's given. It's the Father who gave the Son True wisdom. God created Jesus who was wisdom. So we have the bookends of the Father and the Son. And we have a true Father and the true Son. And in His wisdom, we are redeemed because He mediates for us. He is our advocate in court. So yes, we are asked to trust. Yes, we are asked to do but we will get to the end and we will inevitably fall short. Did Job make a mistake? Yes, Job made a mistake. He's a human being. While he was upright and steadfast and maybe the best man that lived at that time, he was a man. And in the end, Job had to have known, even though he was crying out to God, he had to have known, I've made some mistakes. Oh God, I've made some mistakes, but I tried so hard. For you, God, please, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to give me a break here. I trust you. I'll do what you say. I've tried so hard. That's the incredible power of the gospel. That's the gospel in wisdom literature, is that the message passed down from the father to the son is good advice, but ultimately it's grace. So the application today is simple, as I always say. (laughs) Decisions, our decisions matter. Every decision really matters. Because we can be like Job, and in those moments of heartache, we can begin to go astray. Or we can be like Solomon, and in those moments, where everything's wonderful, we can begin to go astray. Our decisions matter, not because we earn it, but because it crafts our heart, because we're learning the knot, because after a while we can just tie it. And then when things go wrong, the trust is there. Let's pray. Lord, we're challenged always by your scripture. Sometimes we're simply challenged by the, the magnificence of it, how all-encompassing it is, the mystery of how it can be. How could Job cry out to Christ? How could it be that you want to save us? Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to trust, that you would give us faith, and that we may gain wisdom in our life. In your name, amen. <clears throat> i mm-hmm. you